Welcome to Wah Wonders Why, a companion podcast to smart enough to know better. This episode, Wah Wonders Why, What, what the, the Philosophy, philosophy eugenics. eugenics. Now that is a heck of a word, eugenics. Not a lot of good connotations to that word. So I am being joined by ethicist and friend of the show, Kevin Lowe, to unpack it and talk about the latest philosophy behind genetic engineering and whether or not it's cool to... Make yourself human plus one. Welcoming back to the podcast is Kevin Lowe. He teaches ethics at UQ. And last time we had him on, people would say, get that man back on the podcast. He's clever. And you, Greg, definitely are not. So, Kevin, hello. Hello. Oh, what a wonderful introduction, though. I do think you are clever. So anyone who said you weren't clever, I think they're only 50% correct in their assessments of who is clever and who is not clever. <laughs> so they're batting point five, which is better than some. <laughs> but true. still, there's room for improvement there. <laughs> Excellent. I think I think he's on my side, listeners. I'm never, I'm never terribly sure with Kevin. Sometimes I go, hang on, is he... It sounds like a compliment, but I, I, I'll unpack it late tonight. I'll, I'll tell him, go, wait, wait, no, it was a subtle insult. But no, I'll take oh, it. For- that's the job of a philosopher. I've got to make you think by any means necessary. <laughs> well, let's start this time with this What the Philosophy, with something nice and simple, something very easy we can ease into, and that, of course, is eugenics. Oh, eugenics, of course. <laughs> uh, now, eugenics, that's it's a powerful word. I mean, I've seen lots of people who try to discuss human genetic engineering, mm-hmm. and their killer argument is this could lead to dun-dun-dun eugenics. That's right. And suddenly – Drop the mic, walk out. <laughs> and basically what you're picturing – what I'm picturing anyway is when you think of eugenics is as soon as you said eugenics, I could hear jackboots. I could hear – I could hear, you know, glass eyes and big hats and Nazi symbols everywhere and you just sort of like, we will use our science for good, etc. And, you know mm. – and that's all uh, more or less exactly what happened. And you know, we now yes. most closely associate eugenics with the Nazis, but there were eugenic societies and eugenics fairs and eugenics mm. events in Australia and America and the UK. It, it was a global thing, mm. but much like the toothbrush moustache, after World War II, it was so closely <laughs> associated with Nazism that no one wanted to go anywhere near it anymore. It's interesting we're saying eugenics being – I mean, it was it was considered the science of the early 20th century. It was because people were discovering about genes and discovering that this is the way information was passed down. And so there was this idea that, well, maybe we, how was oh yes, just like with farming, if you have a a sick, a genetically inferior cow, you don't let it breed. And they were like, well, humans must be exactly the same, and we should treat them the same. So, and that to now, you, well, nowadays you go, well, that's just evil. But back then there was like a – they weren't trying to be evil to begin with. It was it was like, no, no, this seems like the best thing to do for humans. And then it just led to badness, horror. And there, there was a significant element of classism there as well mm. that they believed that the upper classes were genetically superior to the lower classes <laughs> and know. that everybody would be better off if these lower class people had the upper class genes. So mm. it was in a sense an egalitarian thesis that everybody could be like the upper class, polite, well-spoken, <laughs> educated. And it was only the genes of the lower class people holding them back. And one of the many reasons why eugenics started of fashion was genetic science moved forward and we discovered that that was complete rubbish. The one percenters weren't the genetic elite, they were just the social elite. And in fact, mm. in some cases, you know, the royal families being inbred 
they are more likely <laughs> to have genetic diseases and disorders than the peasantry. Mm. Uh, the reason why the peasantry were short and talked funny was because they were malnourished and poorly educated. Yes. And if you'd done a prince and the pauper swap, you would have ended up with someone indistinguishable from a real upper class or lower class person. You wouldn't have, if you switched uh, an upper class child into a peasant family, they would not have grown up looking like the lord of the manor. Mm. Uh, this is a slightly off topic, but already, you know, only like five minutes in. But mm. there's still that feeling today of if you are a billionaire, then it must be because you are better. And if you're poor, it's because you didn't work hard enough. And really, and there's, there's a different idea that rich people deserve to be there. But and but on the same coin, poor people deserve to be there because they, you know, they, they failed somewhere without taking into account, you know, all the privilege that you had in your life. Uh, so this is not an old idea. No, it's an old idea that seems to have come into the modern era. Mm, and this science of genes came along and people just plugged it into with their existing class prejudices mm. and said, well, obviously, we've explained the class differences. We didn't know why the upper class was so much better, but it's genes. It's yeah. breeding. <laughs> uh, they're the genetically superior subgroup. Mm, it's it's and, awful. But, you know, it's I mean, the idea that some people are just genetically better I, it's, I don't think it's fundamentally all that crazy. I mean, there are people who are really good at athletics and really good at scholastic pursuits. You know, the kind of person who gets to be school captain mm. at a private school. You know, they're taller than average, they're fitter than average, mm. they're better than average at sport, and they also excel academically. You look at someone like that and you think, well, maybe it's their environment, but they're competing against lots of other kids who had the same environment. Mm. And yet they excel. Mm. Uh, so I don't think it's crazy to think that those people somehow won the genetic lottery in some sense. Now, it mm. might not be inheritable. Uh, I don't know if necessarily if you got two people like that and married them off, if you'd have super babies. Mm. Because regression to the mean is a thing. Uh, two super intelligent people will usually have children who aren't as smart as either of them. Just as two really tall people will usually have children who aren't as tall as mm. either of them. Um, well, evolution is not trying to make us the best we are. It's just trying to make sure we breed. So mm. We pass on a genetics. As long as you're fine, as long as you're average, you probably breed back in the back in the day. Yeah, and you know, some people they're shorter than shorter than average. They're funny looking. Uh, they don't excel academically. They don't appear to be great at anything. And I feel you're talking about me. How dare you, sir? <laughs> So you are a genius and a science communicator. Uh, clearly, you've got some things going for you. Uh, but um, some people just, just seem to have been given life's short straw, genetically and environmentally. Hmm. And so you know, I don't think these, these eugenicists were crazy in looking around the world and thinking some people won the genetic lotto and got all the genetic advantages, hmm. and some people lost the genetic lotto and they've got all the genetic disadvantages. And wouldn't it be nice if we could somehow arrange that you know, the – outliers at the low end stopped existing and there are more people who had the good genes in my day-to-day -day life i know people who are my age and who are aging much better than i am or at least externally aging much better than i am and as in they don't look that they don't look very different to the age when i first met them in their mid-20s let's say there are a few extra gray hairs well i've gone almost completely gray in the same period of time so that's maybe not a genetic weakness it's, i mean it doesn't matter if you have gray hair or not but some people don't seem to wither as much as other people. Mm. So is that a, maybe that's a, well, probably is a genetic thing uh, as much as a, a um, diet thing or an exercise thing. Oh, that's a factual question rather than a philosophical one. So I'd be outside my area. But as mm. someone who's graying a fair bit myself, uh, <laughs> it seems like it's purely a cosmetic 
issue. I don't think I run any slower or think any worse because my hair is grey. Mm. Uh, if I had different genes such that without dyeing my hair it was just naturally darker, mm. still I don't think it would make any other difference. It's, you know, it's a marker. Maybe it's a marker of ageing, mm. um, but it's not directly cause and effect. Eugenics was born of this classist perhaps idea that we could breed people like animals. Uh, but the core idea that it would all be nice if we had the good genes, I think, isn't crazy. No one wants their kid to have cystic fibrosis mm. or Down syndrome particularly. Uh, if they do, I think they're deeply weird uh, and ethically worrying. So you know, <laughs> it's, it's clear there are genes you don't want and genes you do want. Mm. They don't fall along class lines or race lines. I don't think white people have all the good genes or black people have all the good genes or upper-class mm. people have all the good genes or anything like that. Um, you can point to individual cases. I believe it's West Africans, uh, mm. people who are genetically West African win the Olympic 100-meter sprints every time. They can be from the USA or they can be from Africa, but if you don't have that ah. package, um, you're not going to win against Usain Bolt. Interesting. Uh, There's a, that's an interesting point because I read a good article about this saying that, yes, it may be genetic, but also it may just be that uh, there's some evidence that it's actually a lot of time it's poorer people, people from poorer backgrounds do mm. better in these sports. And the idea of the thesis of the report was – it's actually because they were poor. They didn't have to buy equipment. They, well, they couldn't buy equipment to go do, you know, bows or, you know, whatever, computing or whatever. And so it, you have to do the things you can do with your body in a small area of space that you're allowed to have. And so running is just one of those things that you don't need anything for. You don't need to run mm. in special shoes. And that was, that was what this argument was saying. It's not necessarily a, a black person versus a white person thing. It's just that on average, unfortunately, you're going to find more West African people who are poor, then you're going to find white Australians who are poor, and they that, and society says, "Hey, run! Running is good." So I, I don't well, know. I've got two responses there, and one is that there are poor people all over the world, mm. not just in uh, West Africa. This is true, uh, and also to win one of the most competitive sporting events in the world, you've basically got to have one in a million genetics and one in a million environment. Mm. You're not going to be a one in a billion runner without both of them mm. uh, or some equivalent combination. So I think it's just taken for granted that anyone who is in the Olympics is going to be a bit of a genetic freak and mm -hmm. a bit of an environmental freak, uh, whether that environment <laughs> was created in a lab doing weights in a high oxygen environment or whatever. I'm, I'm, picking, I'm thinking of Rocky Four now. Was it Drago? Yeah. Yeah, so Drago yeah. yeah, so I said, I will break you. And he was like built. The Russian, the Russian boxer was built. Yeah, and he uh, bench presses while 10 doctors lean over with needles to inject him with steroids <laughs> in the biceps as he pushes up. The genes make a difference. That seems to be right. I mean, if you look at the statistics on IQ or height or any other measure of human performance generalized, it usually works out that the influence of environment and genes is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50-50 or 60-40 okay. or something like that, mm. that you can predict about half the variance in someone's performance on IQ tests by looking at how their relatives do and mm. saying, well, based on the relatives, that accounts for about half the variation. Same with uh, a lot of other human big-picture macro outcomes. Mm. Uh, that we don't know exactly what part of your performance is genetic and what is environmental, but we can uh, predict your performance on the basis of your parents' performance, and that explains statistically a chunk of 
the variation. Okay. The problem with eugenics was, well, a few of them, one of them was that they had the wrong idea about who had the good genes. They mm. weren't looking at outcomes. They were looking at class and race and saying upper-class white people had the best genes. Mm. And they, you know, then a West African runner whizzes past them faster than they could ever possibly <laughs> run. They go, oh, uh-oh, <laughs> maybe we aren't the master race. Uh, maybe we're just albino freaks uh, who should you know, <laughs> die out and be replaced by the faster-running African master race. But also... When we're breeding cattle, we've pretty much got one goal in mind, which is a big pile of meat mm. at the end of the process um, or a whole lot of milk in a bucket. And I don't think it's going to turn out to be the case that you can breed humans for performance the way you can cows mm. because I don't think your modern beef cow is much good at any of the things their ancestors were except being a big pile of beef at the end of the <laughs> industrial process that leads to their death and you know, conversion into food. I don't think they're going to be as smart or adaptable or good at fighting off predators or any of those things Hmm. as their ancestors. So if we decided we're just going to breed the tallest human we can and we breed the tallest human with the tallest human and we breed the tallest kids with the tallest kids and you keep doing that, I think you know we'd have to end up with a bigger person. But would those people have anything else going for? Probably not. They'd probably be worse than average everything else because you're selecting for one thing. We'll move into the idea of... it's no longer just about breeding, about who you're going to end up with and uh, you know, trying to make babies in a certain way. Nowadays, we can actually use things like CRISPR technology, which you talked on the podcast before, about picking genes for people and, and actually building a baby or at, at the very least, this, but to begin with, at the very least, getting rid of problems. If you have some sort of genetic defect that you don't want to pass on to your children, it's becoming, well, very soon we'll be able to get rid of that problem in the next generation. And I think most parents would go, well, I don't want to give my children spina bifida or something like that. I want to give them the best chance possible. Yeah, I think that's entirely reasonable. And in fact, we can already do that. And CRISPR is bringing a howitzer to shoot a flea uh, at this point, because if you don't want to give your kids a single gene disease like cystic fibrosis and you're having IVF, uh, we can already solve that problem. You make a whole bunch of egg cells, you test them all, you throw out the ones that have the cystic fibrosis gene, you implant a bunch of the ones that don't, and you end up with kids guaranteed not to have cystic fibrosis. Mm. Now, you could get to the same outcome in a more laborious way by getting yourself one of those egg cells, but just one, and mm. then using CRISPR to edit the cystic fibrosis mm. gene. But the outcome would be the same. The child that came out would never be able to know whether it was the result of CRISPR or the result of egg selection, because mm. either way, the outcome is just that. You've got a child of these two parents who doesn't have this one gene we're concerned about. But, yeah, the potential is really exciting. If you could figure out the genes that made Usain Bolt a great runner, now, you wouldn't have to have try and create a breeding program where you breed Usain Bolt with the best runners to try and <laughs> You just say, I'll have those genes. I'll yeah. have a copy of those, thanks. I'll just write those down, paste them into my kid. My kid will run like Usain Bolt. And then you go, I want them to communicate science like, wow. So <laughs> go to you, uh, sequence you, identify the genes that make you good at what you do, inject them in. Now they can run like Usain Bolt and communicate science and you know, just go around cherry-picking all the best genes from all the people you like and create a super baby. Yeah, and that's, and that's where it starts getting problematic. So many people would be happy to get rid of problems. They're not everyone. Uh, I might get back to that about problems, but, but most parents would get rid of issues, what we consider issues, and make their designer baby. And because we live in a competitive environment, and you want to make sure – I mean, A, you love your children, of course, but you'd also say, well, why wouldn't I make my kids smarter than the average – well, I wouldn't make them faster than the average, more attractive than the average, smell better than the average, because it's going to give them a leg up in society. And that that's, I mean, why wouldn't you? You'd throw money at it. I don't know too many parents who wouldn't. But the issue there, of course, is throwing money at it. Mm, well, 
rich people already, and I think this is rational if you love your children and want the best for them, already throw money at them. They get private Mm. tutors. They go to private schools. They'll have the best doctors. They'll have all the advantages given to them that poorer kids don't. And, you know, they'll read to them at night and Mm. they'll take them to interesting places and take them on holidays to see the world. And editing their genes to give them, quote, better, unquote, genes. And uh, I think that term's problematic. There's no such thing as a good gene is just a gene that's good in a particular environment for certain whatever outcome mm. you're trying to optimize but they'll do that and it's natural for them to want to maybe we shouldn't let them maybe this is an area where governments should step in and say nope you can't do that mm. but they're going to want to and they're going to try lassoing back in the topic of eugenics we're talking about before there's some people who are trying to reclaim the term eugenics they argued that the reason why eugenics is now seen as such an evil was that it was authoritarian, top-down eugenics. It mm. was the government or other people forcing people with, quote, bad genes, unquote, not to breed by sterilizing them or murdering them and yeah, encouraging oh, yes. rich people to breed. So it was, the problem was that it, not that it was eugenics to search for good genes – it was that it was authoritarian, genocidal eugenics. Mm. And so people like Nicholas Agar have talked about liberal eugenics, which is the nice <laughs> eugenics. It's giving people the liberty <laughs> to choose the genes their children will have. And so we're not going to make you not reproduce because you've got a bad gene, but here's mm. a smorgasbord. Here's Usain Bolt's genes. Here's the Waz genes. Yeah. You can choose, sir. <laughs> It's still problematic in my mind, and it's, I think it's, it's a difficult thing. You were talking before about government saying, no, we shouldn't do this. And part of me thinks, well, unfortunately, once the genie's out of the bottle, the genie's out of the bottle. You can't – someone's going to do it. For example, which I'm sure you're aware, in November in China, a scientist came out and said, oh, I've actually – I've actually made two babies using CRISPR. Two babies are now immune to HIV. That was what he did. He modified mm. two babies. He and everyone went, ah, no, oh, hang on a minute. You won't, won't be doing that because you know it's we haven't reached that stage. No, no one was cool with this. Even China, the Chinese government has said we're not cool with that. Actually, we, we wish he hadn't done that. Now he's now come out. That same doctor's come out and said, oh, by the way, I think the modification for HIV is also going to make these children smarter than average because it's made mm. the mice smarter than average. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and so the idea, well, of course, it doesn't mean it's going to transfer into human babies, but he's saying, I, I didn't mean for this to happen, but I think these kids are going to be quite clever. And that's already, well, we I'm like... no, oh. he's a dodgy customer. Well, yeah, and, yes, right. and, yeah. and of course, what's, what, what's a better way of selling your product than going, oh, I accidentally made some geniuses. Anyway, who'd like to buy my magic snake oil? <laughs> it's, yeah, and it's <laughs> unlikely because IQ, which is in itself a problematic idea, the idea that there's this one quality that sums up all of your intelligence can be usefully measured, is a bit questionable. I mean, IQ does predict IQ. If you find someone who does really well at IQ test, then they're going to do really well at another IQ test. But that's about the extent to which it correlates. Yes. Anything. Yeah. We've already done what's called searching for single nucleotide polymorphisms using genome-wide association studies, which is a lot of fancy talk for looking at a whole bunch of people with different IQs and trying to see with particular genetic makeups, traits, that line up with the IQ outcome. Mm. And these GWAS studies almost always end up with the same conclusion, which is the variation is split very, very finely amongst thousands of different genes, each of which account for 0.1% or 0.2% of the variation. Mm. So in some science fiction stories, a scientist discovers a switch they can flick in the human genome and you've got an IQ of 10,000 or you can punch <laughs> through big walls. And that seems very unlikely based on our knowledge of how genetics work. It's not a switch that makes you a genius. It's 
1,000 or 10,000 switches scattered evenly throughout your body, each of which could be flicked to make you smarter, but is also flicking thousands of other things at the same time. Yeah. So would you want to be a person who had all of those switches flicked? Well, we don't know because we can't create that person. But it seems a fair bet that by optimizing just through IQ test performance, you'd be sacrificing optimization in lots of other areas to get it. So, so once again, this, a very tall human, but maybe not a very smart human. So this person says they found one gene that mm. accounts for a lot of variation in intelligence. No, that gene doesn't exist. We know that. And there's no one gene that accounts for that much of any one thing because mm. uh, we are complicated, complicated critters, and we don't have that many genes. So each gene is doing a lot of work and influencing a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, so I'm skeptical about the claim that your child is going to be meaningfully smarter just because they've got this HIV-related gene. I don't think that's likely. But, you know, again, I'm a philosopher, not a scientist. If you get on a scientist who says, no, Kevin doesn't know what he's talking about, you're probably better off trusting the scientist. But I don't think you'll be able to find such a scientist on this one. Getting back to the philosophy of it then, it, I, let's see, in the future, there could be, in the near future, could be a moment where, just like vaccination nowadays, fall pregnant, and then you go in and they do a, a suite of tests, they give you an injection, and that gives you baseline defense against lots of different things, and it, it fixes all the problems, so no more no more autism, let's say, no more eye issues, like I'm colorblind, so if they get rid of that for my, you know, my children, no, 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 your children now don't have that, and your average intelligence at least, like we try and you know, fix all those problems up or any, any of those things that we can fix that are easy to fix, we sort of try and tweak it. And if someone said no, if someone says, no, 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 I don't want that, is it okay to say, okay, it's fine for your child to be lesser, in inverted commas, or defective, that's okay for us to accept? And I, I find it very difficult because <laughs> when do you start forcing people <laughs> to be average? Mm. Well, it's a tough one, and it runs right into a really touchy issue, which is how we think about and talk about real disabled people, not mm. just hypothetical people. Mm. And I think philosophers tend to make a clear distinction between saying that a gene is a bad gene mm. and a person who has that gene is a bad person. But it's very hard sometimes to get across that you're saying one but not the other. Mm. Uh, if I say uh, the cystic fibrosis gene is a defective gene, some people are going to go, hang on, did you just say people with cystic fibrosis are defective people? Mm. And you know, then you're on the back foot, then you've got this awkward job to do of saying, no, 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 I didn't mean that. <laughs> some uh, of my but, best friends have cystic fibrosis. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but no, I think it's just, it's maybe somewhat indelicate to put it that way, but I think it is just a medical fact. The cystic fibrosis gene is a defect. Part of your cellular machinery has gone wrong and doesn't work the way it should and as a result you're going to have a much more difficult and shorter life mm. it's you no know, it's one gene that's broken now there are lots i think there's a plurality of good lives to live i don't think that you can say that your genes are better than my genes or my genes are better than anybody else's in the general sense but if you've got cystic fibrosis mm. or full-blown sickle cell anemia or down syndrome or the more serious trisomies because down syndrome is the redundant chromosome that you can kind of get away with mm. and if you're lucky uh, and you, you know uh, get a relatively mild impairment from it, you can live a mostly independent life with Down syndrome. Mm. Uh, of course, if you get the short story, you can't, but uh, potentially, yeah, but if you, there are other chromosomes, and if you've got an extra copy of them, you're in a really bad way. Mm. These kind of things, I'm, I'm happy to call them diseases or defects and say you should try to get rid of them the same way you try to get rid of measles. Mm. And I'm not trying to say anything bad about people with cystic fibrosis or measles. I'm not saying that we <laughs> should gas all the people with measles to get rid of measles. But, I'm saying, but if we could just arrange that nobody in the future had mm. measles or cystic fibrosis, that would be a good thing. But it's more difficult with things like 
autism, where it's not clear that these people are wrong or broken. It's not one gene you can point to and say, this gene has a job to do. It's not doing its job. Therefore, we should fix that. Mm. Uh, with autistic people, it gets more difficult, particularly with autistic people who are capable of looking us in the eye and saying, hi, I'm autistic. I'm happy the way I am. I do not want to be fixed, thanks. Mm. And you know, it's very hard to argue against that because they're the one who knows how they feel. They could be lying, but I think we should just err on the side of charity. They're not even lying. I am colorblind. I cannot know what color vision is like for a, uh, a color typical person. It just, I just can't tell. So I am not the best person to say, oh, I don't want to have normal color vision, thank you, because I'm happy the way I am. Well, I might be happy with that, but I'm probably, and I am, missing out on full range color vision. I, this, this is where I start going, but I can't honestly say I'm not defective. I think there is a difference there emotionally, if not medically, between eye impairments like your lack of color vision and my myopia, because uh, we don't feel these things are identity defining, mm. uh, that if I got LASIK surgery or you got a miraculous pair of glasses that let you see color, that wouldn't change who we are. But uh, something like autism that affects how you think to some autistic people, that is key to who they are. It's mm. part of their identity in the same way perhaps that some people, Catholicism or supporting the Labour Party um, or uh, whatever, um, is part of their identity. And if you say that that is bad, then uh, you're saying that they as a whole person uh, are bad. I read an interesting article a while ago, about a year ago now, and there were two people who were deaf, uh, clinically deaf, and they had a child who was also born deaf from the same uh, issue that they both had. And but it can be fixed. It's one of those things, but not, not ge genetically fixed, but mechanical ways, electronic cochlear ways. implant? It, yeah. Yes, cochlear implants. And they've actually said no, because their child isn't broken, their child is just deaf, and therefore that's a different way of living, and it doesn't make them lesser. And of course it doesn't make them lesser as human beings. They have every right, and I, and I support the idea we live in a society that will support people who, are, who have an issue that has to be you – know, we, we don't just throw them to the walls. We, we live as mm. a we, – we are a communal ape, and we give some money and time and effort to make sure that everyone has a life that can be led, even if they have an issue that means they can't contribute in the same way as everyone else does. But part of me then went, but hang on. No, being deaf is an issue. If it can be fixed, just because you're deaf – and therefore, you want your child to be similar to you. I, I sat back and went, I think you're, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I felt it was a bit like I suffered, therefore you get to suffer too now. And I, I, I was, I found it hard to deal with on an emotional mm. level. I agree, and I have a lot of the same intuitions. Uh, to be fair, being deaf isn't just the inability to hear to these people. It's also being part of deaf culture. Mm. Uh, a group of people with their own language, sign language, and their own regional variations of sign language, and they hang out with other people who are part of that culture. Mm. And so if I had a child and someone said, Kevin, due to the genes your child has, when they turn 18, they're going to leave and never talk to you again and go off with their genetically different friends. I go, oh, that's really sad. I, I want my child to hang out with me. That, I don't know if that would give me the right to alter them to stop that happening, but mm. I would be sad. And from a utilitarian moral perspective where the outcomes for everybody count, a deaf couple having a deaf child, there's some negatives there. That child might walk in front of a truck they can't hear coming and they'll mm. never enjoy Bach or Beethoven or mm. the Ramones, depending on what kind of music <laughs> you're into. But on the other hand, there is some benefit that child will be part of their parents' culture and the parents' cultural 
the, the parents will know that and they'll get some happiness from that. Mm. So it's mm. not a total negative. It may be a negative sum depending on how much you value the Ramones and Beethoven and hearing oncoming trucks. Um, but there's something going on there. And mm. deaf people will often quite emphatically assert they are perfectly happy. They don't see themselves as broken. They don't think their life is worse. Mm. And I think that when you think about it, it makes more sense than maybe you know at first glance you think because there are only 24 hours in the day mm. and there isn't enough time to do everything. So if you said, right, from Kepkin, from now on, you can't enjoy anything that requires sound, I would still be able to find things to do all day that entertain me. I could read a book. Mm. Uh, mm. I could watch a video with subtitles. Mm. Uh, you know, if you Go said, dancing. Yeah, yeah. If you... <laughs> uh, you can never play ping pong again. That wouldn't ruin my life. Mm. I would just find different things to do other than ping pong. Even if I loved ping pong and played ping pong four hours a day, I'd be upset. But I'd find something else to do. And in a year or two, I might even be saying, you know, I don't miss ping pong that much. Uh, I've taken up listening to informative podcasts. Uh, and, <laughs> and now I'm equally happy. <laughs> Uh, so I don't think that deaf people are likely to be that much worse off than I mean, we think, oh, no, you've lost this sense, this sense we value that brings mm. us so much information and joy and pleasure. But they're doing something else with their time that is equally fun to them, I'm sure. Because happiness is a indefinable quantity and what makes you happy isn't what makes me happy and, and vice versa. We really should allow people to make decisions based on their own happiness. And if that means not being inverted commas normal or baseline average or whatever that we should accept that well because i'm a philosopher i'm going to confuse the issue but yes what you've just <laughs> said is a perfectly viable line of argument you can say what's important is your child's expected future happiness mm. and the expected future happiness of a deaf person is just as happy as that of a hearing person because they will do things with their time that make them happy and fulfill them that don't require hearing and there are plenty of such things mm. that they can do another view is that you have a moral obligation to give your children an open future, a future with a plurality of options, mm. uh, so that when they turn 18, they can decide to do whatever you want, mm. uh, whatever they want, I should say, not whatever you want, <laughs> the opposite of whatever you want. Uh, so it's generally felt that it's okay for you to choose which school your child goes to, or you can make them take piano lessons or whatever. Uh, but when they turn 18, they can say, I'm never playing piano again. Mm. I'm going to play banjo. Uh, or I'm never going to play music again, I'm going to make podcasts, or whatever they want. Mm. And if you deliberately go out of your way to have a child who is deaf or has no fingers or has no legs or something like that, you can say, well, there's lots of things this kid can do with no legs. What if they want to be a sprinter? Yes. Uh, so you'd say the wrong here is not that you've predictably made them less happy, but that you've predictably made them less free to choose between possible life outcomes. And, you know, there is a deeper philosophical idea under there about free will and about whether we really choose our lives at all. But if you think we really do choose our lives, then maybe there is a good in giving children maximally free choices and not making sure they're deaf or not making sure they have no fingers, you know, even if it turns out that a person with no fingers can have fun playing games that don't require fingers um, just as much as fingered people. We've sort of now gone down the path of bringing people up to an average or getting rid of problems, or at least getting rid of problems that they want to get rid of. So we accepted that. So let's go back to making you human plus. Let's, mm. let's sort of explore that. Is it morally okay to be able to make everyone, or not everyone, certain people, and let's face it, it'll be rich people to begin with, human plus stronger faster better sexier than everyone else will that lead to a big problem in society of the rich being better than everyone else going back to the original eugenics idea of the wealthy are better because the wealthy could make themselves better 
Oh, that could be the reality in future if they get to buy all the good genes and they really will be mm. genetically better. Okay, so there are a couple of potential problems there. One is just a appeal to consequences, saying if we let people use this technology, the rich will make themselves super genes genetically advantaged as well as super financially advantaged, mm. and this will cause some kind of really bad social consequences. That's a possible future. I can't prove that won't happen. Mm. My argument against it is just that Every other technological advance in human history has also benefited the rich first, mm. and it's never broken the world before. <laughs> Mobile phones, mm. rich people had them first. Computers, mm. rich people had them first. Universities, mm. rich people had them first. All of these things, they got them first, and that may be increased in inequality in the short term. But in the long run now, we all have mobile phones and we all have mm. surgeons, uh, and it seemed to work out before. So I think you'd want a specific argument that homed in on the genes and said, this is going to be the thing that breaks the social contract where mobile phones didn't and computers didn't and the internet didn't this is going to be the one where being the early adopter who is rich you know, breaks society and I'm, I'm skeptical about that just because this technology is going to move really slowly because you only get one upgrade per generation biotechnology has moved much more slowly than computer technology computer mm. technology everything gets twice as good every six to twelve months mm. i mean i'm that moore's law uh, i'm probably off slightly on the exact numbers but we it's, it's, now, it's slowing down, but yes, it's, yeah, you are still kind of correct, yeah. I've got a phone in my pocket that had more computing <laughs> power than every computer in the world had uh, put together when I was a kid. I think if there's going to be massive class inequality, it's going to be from computer hardware and software, more so that it's going to be biochemical advantages because mm, okay. you know, biochemistry moves relatively slowly and you only get one upgrade per generation, whereas you get a new phone every few years and a new computer every few years. So, yeah. Uh, that's my view. I could be wrong. This is you know, this is futurism, not philosophy, but I just don't <laughs> buy it that rich people getting access to these genes is going to be what breaks the social contract. You know, robotics, maybe. Maybe robots and software that can do the job of a university lecturer and do the job of a science communicator will take all our jobs and we'll be like, living hand-to-mouth while the rich 0.001% with the robotic armies control the whole world. That seems more like a plausible worry to mm. me that biotechnology mm. problems. So really what you're saying there is a, you feel a rising tide will lift everyone. It may lift some higher, faster, but it will, in the end, lift everyone up uh, to a certain mm. degree. And the thing with human genes is we all come built in with the technology to pirate the good genes. Mm. If there are these genes that are really amazing, then... It, you're not going to be able to slap uh, access controls on them uh, to oh. stop people copying them. Or maybe you can. What a terrifying them. idea. That's right. You're out there walking one day and then you get stopped by the gene police and they take a blood sample and say, well, oh, sorry, that's a that's a gene that's belonging to Coca-Cola Corporation. So you have to pay us a million dollars or we'll, you know, uh, shut down your gene processes, you know, i.e. kill you. Uh, <laughs> uh, hang on a second, honey. I need to use a dongle on my dingle dangle or I can't reproduce because it's, <laughs> it's copyright locked. Yeah. Uh, oh, there we go now i can reproduce <laughs> look and part of me thinks that's a great idea but that's a whole different podcast for another time <laughs> damn it as long as i get to pick who gets reproduced as benevolent dictator of course uh, <laughs> i think it's something to keep an eye on and i certainly think that there's an argument in the same way that we subsidize medical treatment and vaccinations for poor people because we want to live in a society where all the kids are protected against disease mm. i can see an argument for subsidizing people who want to make sure their kid doesn't have cystic fibrosis or tay-sachs or whatever else it is. In fact, I think the Israelis pioneered this, though, again, they were using low-tech means rather than high-tech, um, that people who are ethnically Ashkenazi Jewish have a very high rate of various 
possessive genetic disorders like Tay-Sachs disease that you really don't want. Mm. And so they instituted a system where they would have a secret repository of information about who had, which families had these genes. And if two people who were both ethnically Ashkenazi Jewish, regardless of their religious beliefs, were thinking about getting married and reproducing, you'd phone them and say, hi, I name A, I'm thinking about having babies with person name B. Mm. And they, they wouldn't reveal anyone's genetic information. They would just say, thumbs up or <laughs> thumbs down. Thumbs down means the two of you both have the recessive disorder of something you really don't want your kids to have. Yes. And thumbs up means at most one of you has such a gene. You don't have a paired set of any of the bad ones. So go ahead. And that is germline choice. That's genetic engineering. They're yes. choosing the genes of this generation. It's just a very low-tech Fashion. And I think innocuous, beneficial way of doing it. I think it's a great way of trying to minimize the number of kids who have to live with very serious genetic mm. disorders. This has happened also in Iceland. It's a very similar idea because Iceland's a very small nation and until quite recently had a very small population that didn't have a lot of influx. And so you have a good chance of marrying your cousin or your, you know, your auntie or uncle or whatever like that and having children through the ages with your family. And that's just not a good thing. And so they would instigate this idea of meetups. I can't remember the, the Icelandic word for it because Icelandic is very hard to speak. It's one of those languages mm. you're like, oh, it's very, very difficult for an English speaker anyway. And I, I think it's quite hard for Icelandic, Icelandic people as well, but that's a different thing. And they would actually say they, they'd have parties. It's talking 300 or 600 years ago. They'd, they'd say, okay, in two weeks' time or two months' time, we're all going to meet around this certain glacier area, this nice valley. And if you're related to... Kevin the Tall, then come. Tell everyone, if you're related, like if your great-great-grandparent or whatever is Kevin the Tall, turn up in this valley and we'll have a bit of a party. And so they would just pick someone further up the family tree. And that person's dead, been dead for a while. And they'd all meet, they'd talk about Kevin the Tall and how great he was. And, and the, But what it was for, of course, is everyone in that valley, what the 20, 30, 40 people who came, of course, are all direct design descendants of that person. So really what they're saying was, don't bonk anyone mm-hmm. in this valley. So it's the opposite of a singles meetup. Yes, yes, it is. Don't. But of course, young people being young people, that must have been fraught with danger. Mm. I always wonder about that. You're like, oh, she's amazing or he's amazing. And then you're a like. Story oh. of forbidden love. Yeah. <laughs> they met at the Kevin the Tall party. Their eyes met across the crowded room there. Identical, eerily similar eyes. <laughs> They're all remarkably tall eyes at that <laughs> on stalks. Uh, mm. Yes. And, and, so they would actually, and nowadays they've, they've digitized it. So they've got a very, very powerful database of genetic information of their families and and they keep names but that's just to stop inbreeding as well actually i read that one of the great interventions in the genome of the united kingdom that created a great increase in the overall genetic health of the united kingdom was the germline engineering device known as the bicycle because (laughs) it enabled you to bicycle over to the neighboring village woo the ladies and be home by nightfall uh, when previously uh, on foot it just wasn't possible so if you didn't have a horse you couldn't you had to marry within your village but Mm. the bicycle suddenly multiplied the opportunities you could shop around a half a dozen neighboring villages for hot single ladies and apparently this did wonders for british genetic diversity oh my goodness so you don't need a crispr machine sometimes you just need a bicycle and uh, the indomitable human (laughs) change the genes of a country for the better uh someone would say in this case because yeah less inbreeding we, we do know inbreeding is bad mm. i'm not saying inbred people are bad but inbreeding definitely bad we don't yes. want that so it's a, what's interesting about inbreeding is it's not the first generation that's normally the problem so if you have uh relationships with a family member even a close family member and produce a child we have this idea that it will be 
terrible, terrible mutant mm. blob and or be, no, just not be non-viable and not be born. And that can happen, but it's actually not likely to even be visible that it happened in the first generation. It's when it keeps happening, that's when it all goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong, which was interesting to me. This is not making me a, an inbreeding advocate, by the way. I'm not, I'm just, mm. we, we have this idea for movies that they'll all turn into the hills, hills have eyes kind of situation or, you know, deliverance or something like that very, very quickly. And it will happen in three to four generations if you keep shagging family members over and over again. I feel like I'm, I'm trying to defend it, and I'm really not. <laughs> this is actually, for the people at home who think you know a little bit about genetics, here's a genetics puzzle. Suppose that you could clone yourself, but gender flip yourself. So mm. if you are an XY male, uh, suppose you could clone yourself in every detail, except instead of your Y chromosome, you've got an X chromosome that you could have gotten from your mother. Mm. Uh, or if to make it, just to make sure there's no risk of inbreeding from some other woman uh, who wasn't your mother, but otherwise all your genes come from your mother. Now the question is, if you and this gender flip clone of yours have a baby, is that going to be inbred and bad? Or is that going to be fine <laughs> because you've only got one copy of each of the things you've got one copy of, uh, yes. and it's your child, it's just going to be a mashup of you and your child will just be a clone of yourself. That's one for people at home. To <laughs> I'm, I'm actually totally stumped. I don't if you know. you produce your own clone, will you produce a third clone of yourself who's genetically healthy? Or is it like inbreeding and bad? Yes, I don't, I don't know. Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure. But actually, you're, you're in southeast Queensland. This is very, very important news that came out recently. There has been the second case ever of, let me get this word right, sesquizygotic twins born in southeast Ooh. Queensland. And sesquizygotic twins, so you have fraternal twins, so you have two eggs with two sperm, two different sperm, and basically it's just mm. brothers and sisters born at the same time, really, that's what they are. You have identical twins where an egg and a sperm meet, and then that that um, zygote splits, I think it's a zygote, splits into two. They are, they're clones, they are literally clones. Yes, so two of them, and now you've got sesquizygotic twins where two sperm at the same time enter the egg and manage to get past the barrier at the same time. And so you have these two babies form. And it may happen more often than we think, but we, we don't know. But why they know these twins are, they're about four years old now, these twins, because one is male and one is female, but they're identical twins, except for the, mm -hmm. except for the sex, sex chromosome. Ah. So, so if everybody else is kids. the same. Yes. Would it be a clone of the first two, or would it be inbred and really bad? Yes, I don't. Well, well, now we can do some experiments. They're four years. <laughs> they're four years old, and so you know, let's be cool about this. But, <laughs> but this is the real thing. This is the second one. There was um, 2007. They were found in uh, a pair were found in, in in the United States, and now in Southeast Queensland, another two have been found. Once again, you go, but that's not possible. But it is possible occasionally, and they and they're healthy. They're totally healthy. They're mm. just children i mean no one knows why but yes let's not mate them let's not do that mm. uh, this has come up once or twice in the past in criminal history but it's a bit of an issue for dna forensics when there are identical twins running around mm. you say we found your dna on the murder weapon you say well it could have been my identical twins you yes. don't know no proof beyond reasonable doubt here sir and as long as you arrange to be at about the same place and time as your twin most of the time it's very hard to use dna to prove that one twin or the other committed a crime What's actually really interesting, two days ago, a, I just read this article, I was just checking for it then, there's actually now a test for identical twins to see mm -hmm. who did the actual... Oh, there is! There is a, it's only wow. two days ago, it's brand, brand new. So 
If my evil twin did something bad three days ago, we're still fine? We're still fine. So best of the future, yes. Yes, it's actually an article that says it is now possible to do a blood test on uh, on twin identical twins and work out who was actually the, the perpetrator of mm. the crime. I don't understand it more than that, I'm afraid. I'll have to... I will, I will find the article for people to find. I guess it, would, it might be related to epigenetics, which is the fact that your genes will switch on or switch off the chemical production depending on the environment you're in. So the idea that your DNA determines who you are isn't completely correct. Your DNA determines a range of possible people that you could be, and then epigenetic effects will switch on or switch off the genes that your parents gave you, and that will determine who you end up being, uh, which I find really fascinating. But it also means that it gets quite difficult sometimes to make a clear moral argument saying, is this a good gene to have? Mm. Well, it might not just be that this gene is good for some things and bad for some other things. It might be this gene does absolutely nothing at all unless something switches it on and then it does things. So is the gene the morally responsible agent in that case? Or should we say, well, no, it's not the gene, it's the environment. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, people with low copy numbers of the MAOA gene, uh, this is gene MAOA. If you've got mm. no copies of it in your genome, you are at very high risk of creating, of causing, uh, sorry, committing rape, murder, arson. Also, you just have very poor self-control. Oh, okay. Um, oh, wow. Uh, this is a real thing. A, yeah, there's a family, or I oh, think two goodness. families we've found now, who the men uh, have no MAOA and as a result have no chill. And those families are a mess. Um, oh, that wow. definitely goes in the heading of genes you don't want. People who only have one or two copies of it, the so-called uh, low-copy MAOA carriers, are fine. But they are more likely to end up with bad life outcomes if they're abused as children than people with more copies. So having more copies makes you more resilient to childhood abuse and less likely to be a basket case or a criminal yourself if you're brought up in an abusive family. Wow, uh, okay. so, that's insane. Yeah. Wow, so you can be genetically... Once, it's, oh, that just opens up a whole problem of, of do you, if you do a terrible crime, can I therefore say, well, I'm, look, it's not my fault. My genetics mean that I'm going to be violent and awful. You can't put me in jail for something I cannot control. Well, that's a tough question because I think our court systems are going to have a real problem in the future as we learn more and more about why it is people become criminals. Mm. Because if you allow it as a defense, I know why my client became a criminal. It was the alcohol or it mm. was this gene or it was this brain injury, and therefore you have to let them off. Mm. The more we can explain about criminality, the more we have to let them off until mm. eventually if we knew everything about what caused crime, we could say, here is a complete story, Your Honor, of exactly why my client keeps murdering people, therefore you have to let them off, which seems crazy to me. It seems to me that we should be locking people up if and only if they're a danger to society. Now, mm. whether I can explain why they're a danger to society is philosophically interesting, but it should be neither here nor there. What I think mm. the court should care about is, is this person going to stab someone else if you let them out? Um, but you know, we, we let people do this. We say, my client came from a broken home. They've had a rough life, so go easy on them. And you know, I feel enormous sympathy for people who end up in these bad situations and have a bad life. But, yeah, the fact that we can explain criminality doesn't mean that criminality is any less a danger to other people. And it could go the other way as well. You could say that, well, well, we'll find everyone without that gene and we'll just watch them all the time. We'll make sure that so, – so, Gregoire, you don't have that gene. We're very sorry. You've never committed the crime. You get angry, but you never committed the crime. So we're going to put a little thing on your leg to make sure that we know where you are. So when someone ends up dead in the ditch, we'll, we'll know you weren't next to them. So we're protecting you, Greg, but you know, we'll mm. catch all the criminals now or more chance. Is that cool? 
I, I feel not. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's I mean, guilty before even even a crime has been committed. That's like future yeah, crime. Our society has this value that we do err on the side of giving people freedom, even if we think they're going to misuse it, until we can prove beyond reasonable doubt they have misused it. Mm. Uh, but the fact is, we do know some people are more dangerous than others. You know, in the same way that we can say we know that because of global warming there are going to be more cyclones, we can't point to a particular cyclone and say that's the global warming cyclone. That's mm. the extra that we're only getting because of global warming. But we can say we're expecting three without global warming, and with global warming we're expecting six. So in the same way, if you find people who have suffered traumatic brain injury, grew up in poor and abusive homes, have no family, are single, are living by themselves, have one copy of the MAOA gene, and so on and so forth. You can identify all these risk factors for criminal offending. Mm. And these are just facts about the universe. It is mm. a fact about the universe that people with these characteristics are more likely to be convicted of a serious crime than people who don't have them. But we don't lock people up for that yet. Yes. Uh, would it be rational <laughs> to watch these people closely or would it be rational to think that if these people were accused of a crime, it was more likely to be true? Mm. Well, statistically, it probably is. Mm. Fortunately, we don't lock people up for statistical probability in our society. And I yes. think that's a virtue <laughs> yet. But you know, it just is true that if a murder has been committed and I know nothing about it except there are two suspects and one of them has every possible indicator of being a dangerous psychopath and mm. one person has had a enormously privileged life genetically, environmentally, every way, I know it's far more likely that the person who got the genetic and environmental short straw is the killer. You can uh, spend more resources or you, you put more resources to, to dig into that person's life to find out whether they did it or not because you, you're, you're more confident it's going to be them. It sounds dystopian, but I don't think it actually is because to a large extent – I've looked into this because I've been trying to learn what we know about the – links between genetics and crime. And in many cases, the causal chain seems to be some genetic issue causes people to end up with bad life outcomes like being 25 and never had a girlfriend, living by themselves, bullied in school, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so they're more likely to commit crimes. But other members of the cohort who have the same genetic disadvantages, but for whatever reason don't end up being bullied, don't end up being single and so forth, don't commit more crime. Mm. Uh, mm. So the chain is you know, you've got an extra Y chromosome. This may cause you to be more bullied and le to be less socialized, and that causes you to commit crime. But it's not the genes themselves. Mm. It's the way society treats people who have those genes. Mm. So if we can identify people with those genes, we say, right, we need to take extra special care of these people, bring them up to the level of criminality of everybody else you know, to make sure that they've got the same chance of living a decent non-criminal life as everyone else. Now, just take extra care of them, make sure that they are properly socialized, make sure they're not bullied, or if they are, they get appropriate support. So if we treat this as a way of identifying people who are at risk, of life outcomes no one wants. I mean, no one wants to be a murderer and no. go to prison. No. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if we could show you, Greg, why, here's the science. Uh, you are at 50% higher risk of being a murderer and going to prison. We want to help you to bring that mm. risk back down. I think most people would be open to that and see the sense in it. Oh, I wonder. I, I, <laughs> I, think, I think you're, I think you're a bit, bit, um, Starry-eyed. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think many some people would be, take that very personally. They would they would see it as a because it Did would you say I was a potential murderer. Murder? I'll kill you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder. I wonder. Now, look. Before we finish up, we're sort of running out of time, and I'd like to I'd like to give my reason why I don't think that genetic engineering is going to lead to the downfall of civilization or that for the rich to take over. And it's nothing to do with being people nice or even like money. I think it comes down to fashion. I think that. Fashion changes so quickly that if you genetically engineer your child to look a certain way, 
in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, that's going to be an embarrassing look. They're going to go, oh, my goodness, your parents gave you blue eyes and blonde hair? That's so embarrassing. And so you'll have these generations of children who are very unfashionable very, very quickly. Let's face it. My phone is very unfashionable now, and it's only four or five years old. If I had a child that was unfashionable, I'd never live it down. So you try try and make it as average as possible to try and make sure it didn't stand out too much in a certain way. Well, either you've been sneakily doing some research or you, sir, Ooh. are a genius. Because oh, I believe there's, in fact, hard <laughs> facts uh, to back up the view that you are exactly right. Oh, wow. And we can't present this evidence directly in the form of a podcast. But for viewers at home, mm. if you want, uh, Google winners of state eugenics competitions uh, in the USA in the 30s. Uh, these were people who went and entered most eugenic families and most eugenic couple competitions right. and were judged by sober judges on who had the best genes. And put it this way, these people do not look like they would headline a Marvel movie. <laughs> they do not. Uh, so I think you are right. Oh, Go wow. back a hundred years and the fashion about who was the obvious genetic super being mm. were totally different. Mm. Uh, nowadays, we think it's the Hemsworth and, and Scarlett Johansson. And maybe we're right. But a mm. hundred years ago, we had very different ideas. Mm. And maybe mm. in a hundred years, we'll have very different ideas again. And you know, maybe we will look at people and say, oh, where did he get his genes? Yeah. <laughs> were his um, parents really into you know, turn-of-the-century Marvel movies? <laughs> it's like a Hemsworth. <laughs> How embarrassing. And so with with the terrible catch cry of don't make your kids look like Hemsworth, thank you very much, Kevin, for spending time chatting to us today about all things eugenics. Oh, a great pleasure, Greg. And I'd love to do it again sometime. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. A lot of information delivered in just under an hour. Goodness me. Now, a few corrections to be made. When we were talking about sesquizygotic twins, I said that they shared 100% of the DNA, but that's not actually true. Fraternal twins, or dizygotic twins, they share half the DNA, 50% maternal, 50% paternal. For identical twins, monozygotic twins, they share all the DNA, 100% maternal, 100% paternal. They're basically clones. But sesquizygotic twins, semi-identical twins, they share three-quarters of their DNA, 100% of their mother's DNA, and 50% of their father's. All of this will be in the show notes. Go and have a look. Also in the show notes, a really good article about the MoMA gene, the so-called warrior gene, and how that can be considered a very, very loaded term indeed. Worth having a read. Finally, definitely have a search on Google for 1930s eugenics winners for state competitions it's amazing they they as kevin said they don't they don't look like superhumans of any sort they just kind of look like people uh mm, it's it's an interesting thing how times have changed and uh, what is considered attractive has actually changed or desirable at the very least oh my goodness finally what do you think listeners if you reproduce with your gender flipped clone Would that result in another clone of one of you, be it male or female? Or would it be some sort of weird inbred monster? I really am still quite stuck on that. I have no idea. So get back to me. What do you think? And should you just try it anyway? If you met your clone gender flipped, would you find them attractive? I I don't think I would. I don't think I'd find a female me that attractive or even a male me that (laughs) attractive. Maybe that says more about me. I should learn to love myself more. So, ladies and gentlemen, beautiful listeners, keep loving yourself. Not like that. Don't be filthy. 
keep believing in yourself and I'll talk to you again on the next podcast.